When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're talking real money. ESG investing. You know what that is? Well, it may be the next big thing in investing. What it refers to is environmental, socially responsible, and good governance companies. Companies that care about the environment, that care about their social responsibility, and try to govern their companies to do what's best for the public and their shareholders. It's, uh, you know, got a lot of other names in the past, but ESG is the one that's stuck. So you're going to see a lot of that in the not-too-distant future. And as someone in the investment business, I am regularly contacted by firms that are bringing out ESG-type products. And I got a call today from a company I'd never heard of. They wanted me to talk to one of their salespeople about their mutual funds, and I'm reluctant to do so because I don't have a lot of time to get a sales pitch. I don't want to get pitched. I can look them up all by myself. The name of the company is Cushing, and they run a number of mutual funds that, uh, well, one is uh, a, a ESG fund. It's called the Global Clean Equity Fund. And I thought it might be interesting to contrast and compare that offering with an offering from Dimensional Funds. Dimensional Funds has been in the ESG space for many years. And I thought it might be fun to compare this newer fund that's only been around for, I don't know, less than 10 months with one that has been around for, let me see, when did they start this? Oh, my gosh, a long time, oh, well over a decade ago. The, uh, the DFA, U.S. Sustainability Core Fund. So I thought I'd compare the two. The Global Clean Equity Fund from Cushing has a handful of stocks in the portfolio. It's actively managed. So they're going to try and pick the best. The DFA fund has 31, over 3,100, almost 3,200 different stocks in the portfolio. They screen, they screen, they screen them uh, for the, uh, the, the, the sustainability screens that DFA has put in place, and Cushing has their own screens. And I can't really compare returns because the Cushing fund only has a few months, so we don't compare returns. It doesn't make sense to compare returns anyway, really, because the difference is astonishing. One, you've got a fund with 30 stocks or so versus one with 3,100 stocks or so. The Cushing fund charges 1.4% per year, and that's after eating a bunch of their expenses. Their first-year expenses were about 22%, but they ate the rest of those. While the expense ratio for the DFA Sustainability Core Fund is 
0.23%. This is a huge difference. And it's the kind of difference that, assuming they perform equally, which is what you should assume, the Cushing Fund is going to return less to you because of its higher fees. They have to take more risk to outperform, and that's exactly, if they outperform, that's exactly what that outperformance will mean, taking additional risk. Having a portfolio of 30 stocks is highly risky when compared to 3,100 stocks. Can a large number of those 30 stocks go broke? A sizable portion of the portfolio? Yes. Can a sizable portion of 3,100 stocks go broke and permanently decrease your net asset value? Probably not. So uh, when it comes to investing, fees matter. Longevity matters. There's no need, there's no reason to get into the latest hot thing when there's lots of nice warm things out there that have a track record, that have a history, that have the diversification you need and charge reasonable fees. Have questions? Give me a call, 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255, or leave questions online at talkingrealmoney.com. Like this one, and it's a doozy. This is really one of the better questions in a while. Ready? (laughs) Okay, here we go. In an IRA, what do we actually own? Hello, Don. This is a question that's been bothering me since I heard of a company called Seed & Company, which apparently owns all of the stock in the country. I need to stop right there. (laughs) Because he's right, technically. You see, well, no, you know, no, 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 no. I'm going to let that one, I'm going to let that one marinate for a moment while I go into his question. Because the first sentence was bigger than the rest of the question. But let's go to the question. My wife and I have a traditional IRA at Vanguard. On the stock side, we invest in several index funds. Do we actually own any part of the stocks that make up those funds? On the bond side, we've invested in the short and intermediate term treasury bond funds. Do we actually own any treasury bonds? Or do we own some sort of derivative of treasury bonds? What? do we own in that IRA? Hopefully more than just an IOU. Thank you. History lesson. There was a time in America when people actually got stock certificates. And I guess technically you still can. But what happened in the 70s was that a the government established the Depository Trust Corporation. This allowed companies to deposit their shares and allowed for the electronic transfer of interest in those shares. 
it's kind of like when you go to the store and you buy a $1,000 television, big screen, nice TV, and you buy it with your credit card. You're not paying cash dollars or gold or specie of some kind. No, what you're doing is there's an electronic transfer of those funds, just like stocks. So when Vanguard buys a bunch of stocks, they're electronically transferred to show up on Vanguard's balance sheet. Now, there is actually a company that is part of Resolution Trust, and it's cleverly named Seed and Company, C-E-D-E, because the control of the certificates is ceded to the Depository Trust Corporation, and they own, they have in their vaults, which are at a secret location somewhere in New Jersey, of 50, I don't know, 50 some odd trillion dollars worth of stock certificates. So that book entry transactions can be accomplished. It's a little old fashioned to have the actual certificates, but it's actually necessary in the current system. So you don't own a derivative of them. You own them. They're just being held in a vault for Vanguard's interest, which owns them for your interest. Uh, it's not fake, but it's the system. And it's a system, by the way, that is has been adopted around the planet. It's not just here. There are depository trust vaults all over the world. So while it sounds really conspiratorially crazy, uh, it works. And it should continue to work. I mean, the only scenario in which you could see it not working is if the entire computer systems of the entire planet were destroyed and then somebody managed to find the vault and nuke all the securities and all the records were gone. But Again, this is one of those scenarios where you go, is that likely to happen? So yes, there is a seed in company. Yes, you own stocks. You just don't have the certificates. Uh, and you couldn't with the uh, the Vanguard like Total World Stock Index Fund. You couldn't possibly hold all 8,000 certificates. Nor could Vanguard even. So it's it's worked so far. We just have to hope it keeps working kind of like our form of government. 855-935-TALK. You can call that number for free. You can also uh, leave a verbal message at TalkingRealMoney.com on the contact form, or you can do like most people do and just send it to me like this. The subject, paulmerriman.com slash Fidelity Tax Deferred ETF Portfolios. Hello again. Just over two years ago, I invested a sizable traditional IRA into the mutual fund suggested by Paul Merriman's Fidelity Tax Deferred ETF portfolio, which you can find here. Any thoughts about this por- <laughs> Let me say that again. Any thoughts about this portfolio as a long-term allocation? My hope is that if I stick with it, I'll see the benefit over the long haul. However, I'm struggling to hang in there with this allocation based on the performance of the last two years, which is up about 6%, as opposed to the S&P 500, which is up 15% just this year. I've been hearing you talk about the lost years of the S&P 2000-2010, but that's because of the wildly out-of-control speculation over all things internet that imploded around 2000, right? 
Anyway, any thoughts you have on this portfolio would be greatly appreciated. So that's the first question. I'm going to do that one. See, Paul believes as we do in the science, in the data that shows that value and small tend to outperform over time, that international markets have their day in the sun just as U.S. markets do. Right now, it's a U.S. growth-oriented market, which is very similar to, to what it was back in the 90s. Very similar, as you said. They imploded around 2000. But what happened, though, in that 2000 to 2010 period where you would have lost money in the S&P 500, you would have made about 6% overall. You see, it's trading great for average because you would have had awful for 10 years and then you would have had great for 10 years. But when you average it all out, if you average out the awful and the great, you come out in the, in the middle. But by owning average, you reduce the volatility, which is the scary part of investing. I know we're never, we never get scared about upside volatility. We love that. It's the down part we hate. So this is okay. I truly believe in what Paul believes, and I think you'd be foolish to make any changes because if you did, what you'd be doing is the same thing that bad investors have been doing since the beginning of investing, and that is waiting until things have already gone up and then looking back and going, oh, I should get those. They've gone up. Confusing having gone up to going to go up. You want to buy those things. You want to own those things that haven't done as well too. And you have that right now. You have the good ones and the bad ones, and you're supposed to accept an average annual return. And in this day and age with bond yields next to nothing, an average annual return on a diversified global portfolio of about 6 maybe 7% per year is all you should expect. To expect more is to just be greedy. That's a good number. Second question. On another subject, opening a new traditional 401k and transferring over from a 401k that is currently at Northwest Mutual, they are charging an annual management fee of 1.5%, so I want to get out of that. Heck yeah. What kind of account do you recommend? Vanguard, Fidelity, other? I'm assuming you'll say Vanguard. Yeah, I like Fidelity too. You, know, you can do the Fidelity total stock and the total international funds for your equity portion. They have a great bond index fund. So yeah, I'll say Vanguard or Fidelity. Uh, broad U.S. equities, you, you say. You want to fund with broad U.S. equities. You don't. Uh, well, you want both. You want that and international. So you can do that at Vanguard with one fund, which is the Vanguard Total World Stock Index, or you can do it at Fidelity with the two funds, which you should balance about 50-50, the Vanguard, or I'm sorry, the Fidelity Total Stock Index, and then the Total International. Uh, and then for bonds, they have a good bond index fund, just like Vanguard does. Uh, let's see. Risk tolerance is high. What percentage would you suggest going into the bond fixed income stable portion? I'd like to put about 50% in the equity portion into U.S. 50 international. Good. Um, you might want a little small cap value in the 401k, possibly in an index fund. Uh, go take the risk quiz, though, just to make sure. That should give you a reasonable percentage. She's 57, four to seven years from retirement. It really depends on how soon you plan to use that money. And really, it's the being able to stomach the volatility and be patient when one part of your portfolio seems to be beating the tar out of the other, because someday that is likely to change. Thank you for 
your question. I truly do appreciate it. Again, send in your questions at talkingrealmoney.com or give us a call at 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. Shall we do one more? Let's do that. Oh, it isn't even a question. It's just a comment. I'll save this one for Saturday because it's for Tom. Let's see. Oh, that one's long. Uh, let's see. Where are we on time? Sure, I can do this one. Okay, we're good. Because tomorrow's French Friday. Uh, subject, how much is too much in tax-deferred savings? Hello. I am 45 years old and I'm thinking I'd like to retire at about 60. Between my spouse, 41, and I, we've got about 800000 in tax-deferred savings and about another 90000 in Roth IRA accounts. I am a New York State employee, and my spouse is a stay-at-home mom. As a state university employee, we have the option of a traditional pension or an optional retirement program, 401A. I took the 401A option run by TIA when I was 23. My employer contributes 13%, which at my current salary equates to about $17,000 a year. And I can't contribute anything additional to that. That's okay. Take the free money. We also have a 403B, also run by TIA, 457, and uh, with, to which you contribute 19.5. You're a good saver. After a promotion a couple of years ago, we took the uh, raised money and have been contributing to the 403B and 457 pre-tax. We're also contributing 54 into pre-tax accounts between employer and employee. This is saving me a lot of money on taxes. Yes, it is, between federal and state. I also have Roth options for both 403B and 457. Should I continue to max both plans with pre-tax dollars and then concentrate on Roth conversions after retirement? Uh, age 60, before taking Social Security, age 70, when we could be able to convert at a low tax rate? Or should I contribute what I need to pre-tax to bring us down to the 12% federal bracket and then contribute to the Roth options. I don't want to end up with so much money in pre-tax that I can't convert enough by the time I collect Social Security and have to start taking RMDs that we'll end up paying more in taxes than, than, we, than we need to. There really isn't a rule of thumb. He's asking if there's a rule of thumb as to how much is too much in pre-tax accounts. There isn't a rule of thumb because we, can, we cannot know the future. We don't know what your situation is. However, what we do know what we do know is that you're a good saver and you've got lots and lots and lots of time. So you're putting a ton of money away. You should try to keep your bracket down to some extent now, but I love the idea of a split because we don't know what the future will hold. And because you're such a good saver, having tax-free money gives you flexibility in retirement. It gives you money that you can leave and not touch so that you can carefully pull out your other monies. And you're right, you may not be able to convert enough in that 10-year period based on how much you're saving to avoid kicking yourself into a ridiculous tax rate. And we don't know where the brackets will be in the future. So we just don't know. And when we don't know, it's best to take that middle average course, the safe course. And in this case, I would do both the pre-tax and the Roth options with your retirement savings so that when you get to retirement, you've got, you know, a million, two million in, in tax deferred stuff that has to 
that's subject to an RMD, and then about the same amount, because you're on track, looking at how much you have now, uh, about the same amount in a Roth so that you don't have to touch it, and it also gives you some really powerful estate planning tools with that Roth. So I'd split it up. There's no absolute answer, and there is no rule of thumb because there are too many variables. But the biggest variable I see with you is your skill at saving. And that usually equates into a pretty high tax bracket in retirement. Thanks for your note. Thanks for all your notes. Thanks for all the calls. Thanks for all the questions. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for telling friends. Uh, We really, truly appreciate you and appreciate you helping us spread the word. And to show you how much we appreciate you, we've always, always, for example, in this kind of a situation where there's a lot of complexity, if this gentleman wanted to speak with one of our advisors, I can assure you our advisor would have helped go through the same kind of thing just more slowly, maybe taking a half an hour or so, um, and wouldn't do it with any expectation of compensation or any high-pressure sales pitch to get you to become a client. Because let you in on a little secret. We've been doing business this way for a decade. And guess what? We're successful in our business because we don't push people to become clients. I know. It seems counterproductive given the high-pressure sales pitch from most of the financial services industry. But we found when you help people, they appreciate it. That's what we want to do is just help people. Works out really well. So if you want to set up an appointment with one of our advisors, it's so easy to do. Just go to veststory.com and click on one of the links or go to the bottom of the page and make an appointment. We'll get with you on Zoom or on the phone and try to help you out. Again, my thanks. Tomorrow, French Friday. Saturday is the live show that we do from 3 to 5 Eastern at 855-935-TALK. Tom will have his weekend podcast. We inundate you with good information here on Talking Real Money. I'm Don McDonald. Talking Real Money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately, consistently predict the future. So past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That's a wrap.